Well, hey everyone, so good to be with you. My name's Sam, and uh, welcome to week two of our sermon series on relationships. Last week, Pastor Mark opened up our series explaining that we were made for this. We were made for relationships with God and with each other. And, and I know that I personally felt so stirred and challenged, and there's some great conversation that was happening in the chat of our interactive services. Uh, but today we're going to continue that important theme of relationships, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, some teachings from Jesus from John chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there right now? John chapter 13. And while you're doing that, while you're flipping there or scrolling there, let me just give you some context or set the stage for you as to what's happening in the passage we're about to look at together. So it's a Thursday night, and it's, it's not just any Thursday night. It's a night that Jesus and his disciples have been anticipating for a long time. It's, it's the Passover celebration. And Passover is, is, a, is a really important holiday in the Jewish calendar because it's a day that the people of God look back and remember that he had delivered them and their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And so Jesus and his 12 disciples are sitting around a long wooden table in an upstairs apartment. And this is just hours before Jesus would be betrayed, leading to his death. His disciples don't have any clue what's about to unfold in the hours that are ahead and, and in the days to come. And so they're in conversation, they're eating together, and then Jesus shares these words. This is John 13, starting in verse 34. Jesus says this, A new command I give you that you would love one another as I have loved you. So you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I wanna read it one more time, because especially if you've grown up in church or if you've been around church, ours or another for, for quite some time, it's possible that you're very familiar with this verse. And, and with familiarity, sometimes it's possible that we just hear these words and we let them kind of pass us by because they feel familiar, we've heard them. But I want to urge you to, to heed to these instructions from Jesus. So, so as I read it again, would you just close your eyes even and, and hear these words from Jesus spoken over you? This is Jesus talking, John 13, 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray and then we'll unpack these words from Jesus together. Well, Lord, Jesus, we, we, we want to learn from what you've shared, from, from, from what you taught your disciples that Thursday evening at the Last Supper, and we want to apply it to our context here in Coquitlam or wherever we find ourselves. We want to love like you, and so would you teach us how to do that? Open our ears, open our hearts to what you'd want to speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in a, in a culture of individualism, and we see it show up all over the place in so many different ways, dating all the way back to the Enlightenment, but it's especially shown its face, or maybe I've just become increasingly aware of it in the last few decades in the West. In recent years, psychologists and sociologists have named our culture not only one of individualism, but of radical individualism. And in the midst of the pandemic, we've seen a heightened sense of this with a deep commitment to care for me and what's mine. I was remembering back to March of 2020, a whole year ago now, where for the first time in my life, I walked into a supermarket and I saw empty shelves. And I remember walking into Thrifty's Foods, which is uh, the supermarket, the, the grocery store near my house. And, and it felt like I was walking into a scene from Left Behind, if you know that movie. Or it felt apocalyptic in nature as people were hoarding food and toothpaste and toilet paper for their families. A sense of individualism or self-preservation, it led people to do some crazy things. 
And then on top of that, through the, throughout the lockdown and the pandemic, it seems like social media has become more and more toxic with, with polarizing content being posted to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, people sharing their very strong individual views and almost shouting over one another with every tweet and post. Social media has, has heightened this sense of individualism because it provided a space or even a soapbox of sorts, a megaphone for people to voice their strong opinions. And it's brought disunity in our culture. And it's also brought disunity in, in the church with people's aggressive opinions on either side about masks and vaccines and politics, whether the church should open its doors or not. And, and it hasn't been in a way that's facilitating meaningful conversation, but in a lot of cases, it's essentially just been people shouting over one another and, and, and not taking time to hear or learn from others' thoughts and opinions and lived experiences. Individualism, put, individualism puts this heightened value on personal opinion and personal happiness and says, no one should be able to challenge me or take away my personal freedoms. Individualism says my main objective is to take care of me and mine and to ensure that we have what we need. And then we come to this command from Jesus. And he says that we're to love one another as he has loved us. Thinking of the needs of others before our own. And this stands in stark contrast to the individualistic society where we find ourselves today. It also stood in, in stark contrast to the culture of the original hearers. See, see, Jesus presents this command as a new command. He says, a new command I give you to love one another. But the truth is, is that the, the command to love was as old as the Mosaic Revelation. Love your neighbor as yourself was recorded in Leviticus and would have been taught regularly by the rabbis in the synagogues. But this is important. This is a really important note. He presents it as a new commandment because the radical love of Jesus that he was calling his disciples to, it demanded both a new object of their love and a new measure of their love. A new object and a new measure. What do I mean by that? Many, many Jewish rabbis had watered down the Mosaic teachings so that they could love whoever they wanted and they could hate whoever they wanted. They'd, they'd reduced the definition of, of neighbor to those who were geographically close to them with the same ethnicity or, or socioeconomic status. They'd stripped the original command to love your neighbor as yourself of its truly provocative nature by defining neighbor in, in a way that would benefit self. But in the command of Jesus, he makes it clear that the object of our love needed to change from, from those who, who I choose to love, who are like me and who can reciprocate my love, to all followers of Jesus, no matter their race or status, or even whether or not I like them or I can see eye to eye with them. The ancient world was so divided and full of prejudice, master and slave, Jews and Gentiles. The Greeks considered the, the Jews, or, or at least those in the north, as barbarians. The Jews had this reputation of, of being haters of the world. There was also this, this vast chasm between men and women. The world seemed helplessly alienated. Sound familiar? And then Jesus comes with this command in the midst of the mess and the chaos, and he says, love each other. Not just the ones who are like-minded to you or who it's easy to love, but all people who are part of the family of God. Jesus also set a new measure for love. He said, love as I have loved you. So then how did Jesus love? Okay, in order to, for us to, to understand the love of Jesus, we need to take a moment to unpack this word love. Because in the English language, love has such a range of meanings. We say we love our kids or our, our moms or our grandmothers, but we also say that we love fried chicken or, or donuts. 
In, in the Greek, in the language the Bible is written, there's multiple words for love, whereas in the English language, there's, there's really only one word. The word that's used here by Jesus is the word agape, or agape love. And we see this idea of agape love running all through Jesus' teachings and then repeated all throughout the New Testament writings. Paul, the apostle who, who wrote much of the New Testament, he unpacked uh, agape love in, in his famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where he described agape love as patient, and kind, trustworthy, not self-seeking, keeping no records of wrong, honorable, protecting others, celebrating others. For Jesus, agape love is not a feeling that happens to you, like the phrase, I fell in love. It's, it's instead an action that followers of Jesus choose to embrace, putting the well-being of others ahead of themselves. It's a generous kind of love. N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian, he said this about agape love. He said, agape love is a virtue. It's a language that must be learned, a musical instrument that must be practiced, a mountain that must be climbed via some steep and tricky cliff paths, but with the most amazing view at the top. It's one of the things that will last, one of the traits of character which provides a genuine anticipation of that complete humanness we're promised in the end. It's part of the future which can be drawn down into the present. I love that. And in showing and receiving agape love, we're experiencing a glimpse of heaven. But as N.T. Wright so articulately wrote, this kind of love is something that, that needs to be learned, that needs to be practiced. Love as I have loved you. Jesus modeled agape love so beautifully, and we see this all throughout the Gospels. Even just in, in a few verses before our teaching text in John, we see a picture of what love looked like in the life of Jesus. If you have your Bibles open to John 13, look, for, look at just a few verses before, the first few verses of chapter 13. We see in, in an act of true humility that Jesus washes his disciples' feet, a towel over his shoulder, the God of the universe down on his knees washing the feet of his friends. See, agape love is a call to serve, to servant leadership. In ancient times, the feet was the dirtiest part of you. It was covered in dirt and grime and mud uh, that had been caked onto your feet from walking in sandals on the dirty dirt roads. And so the disciples' feet, they, they wouldn't have just been smelly like maybe yours or mine are when we take off our sneakers, but they'd be covered in camel poo and who knows what else. And on top of that, Jesus is their rabbi, their teacher, presumably the one who deserves honor. He should have been the one who was getting his feet washed. He had done so much for them and yet... Jesus models a race to the bottom. He shows them what it actually meant when he said just days before that the greatest among you is your servant. It seems that servant leadership is, is almost a bit of a buzzword in the business world right now. And, and in lots of ways, that's great. I mean, I love that, that, that businesses are, are really taking this idea seriously because it's gonna make our society better. And, and, and as business leaders learn to serve those that they're leading, but in many of the secular books that I've read on the topic, servant leadership is, is almost presented as a means to an end. It's a means to make friends and to influence people, to build trust with others so that they'll do what you're asking them to do and become more productive or produce better results. But Jesus' model of servant leadership and agape love is not serving to get something out of others, but serving with no expectation of ever being repaid. He's disadvantaging self for the advantage of others. This is the kind of love that Jesus is calling his disciples to. And if we're to count ourselves as followers of him, then we need to have this, this humble servant love as part of who we are 
people who live with a towel over our shoulders, always ready to serve one another in the world. I found this interesting. One of the books that I was reading this last week points that while Jesus doesn't exclude washing the feet of those outside the church, like he doesn't say, don't wash the feet of, of unbelievers, but it's clear that the act that Jesus is calling his disciples to is meant primarily for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And, and honestly, in some respects, I, I think that's harder. It's more difficult. It's easier sometimes to humble ourselves and wash the feet of those we don't know. But in our own families, our fellow believers who we loathe, that we haven't spoken to in years, we're to wash their feet. Jesus' instructions are clear in verse 17. He says, now, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash the feet of one another. Now, there, there isn't the same need for literal foot washing that there was in the ancient Near East because we have close to, toe shoes and our streets are much cleaner and we have showers where we can wash our feet. So then, does that mean that we're off the hook on this one? Living in 2021, we don't have to wash feet anymore. Well, well no, the principle of foot washing still applies. But, but what does it look like in our culture? Well, I would say it looks like serving one another with no strings attached giving to others as they have needs. This is something the early church recognized and lived out so beautifully. We see in, in Acts chapter two, we see that they shared everything. They ate together. They sold property that they didn't need and gave the money to those who were struggling. Agape love requires that we serve one another and in serving one another, we take each other's needs seriously, giving without any expectation of being repaid. Talk about countercultural. Jesus, uh, he also calls us to love our enemies. This agape love, this, this selfless sacrificial love, it compelled Jesus not only to tolerate people who, who persecuted him or who were awful to him, but to embrace them as, as friends. Again, in, in John chapter 13, I just want to take a moment to look at how Jesus interacts with Judas, the one who would betray him. Verse, verse 21, let's, let's read it together. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another and at a loss, uh, sorry, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciples and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one who I'm gonna give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is, there's, there's an important symbolism that's happening here that I've missed in the past when I've read this text. In, in a Bible commentary that I was reading this week, R. Kent Hughes pointed out that, that the dipping of the bread together with, with another person was a sign of friendship in Jewish culture. This is an act that shows up a number of different times in all throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, we see uh, with Ruth, uh, the story of Ruth, that there's this dipping of the bread that symbolizes friendship. Taking a morsel from the table, dipping it in a common dish, and then offering it to someone else was a gesture of, of this kind of special, intimate friendship. And Jesus, full knowing that in a short time, Judas would betray him, would turn on him and, and give him to, to those who would kill him, he reached out in love as he passed the piece of bread to Judas, it's like he was saying, Judas, here's my friendship. Here's restoration. Judas, here's my heart. All you have to do is take it, old friend. Will you take it? And if you know the story, just moments later, Judas goes and he ends up betraying Jesus and he turns him in to be killed. Jesus also washed Judas's feet. When he was washing his disciples' feet, he didn't skip over Judas. He knew what was to come. He knew what Judas was about to do and he washed his feet 
anyways. He served him. What an example as Jesus lived out the teaching from Matthew 5, 44, when he taught to love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. Again, this, this just stands in stark contrast to our very polarizing society. What, what's, what's the natural response in our cultural moment when someone hurts you or, or does something offensive? What do we do? Well, in, in 2020, we, we, we cancel them. We cut them off. We ghost them. Or you act like they don't even exist in the first place. Our culture says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're against me, then I want nothing to do with you. But the agape love of Jesus says, although we're different, although we, we disagree, and, and although maybe you even hurt me and you've done something that's just not okay, you're welcome at my table. The call of Jesus is to stubbornly loyal friendship, keeping no record of wrong. And Jesus taught this a number of times, this, this idea of love for your enemies or loving those who hurt us. And in Matthew 5, 40, he says, if someone takes your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Also in, in Matthew chapter five, he says, but I tell you this, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right side, turn them the other cheek also. As I was thinking about this idea of enemy love this morning, as I was preparing to share with you today, I was remembering back to this, this beautiful picture of, of this lived out in recent years. On September 16, 2018, a man named Botham Jean was shot in his apartment by an off-duty police officer. Absolutely brutal affair and obviously leaving his family broken and grieving on account of what had happened to their brother and son. And a year later, as the court case was coming to a close, Botham's brother Brent had the opportunity to address the killer. And I don't know if you've seen the video, it aired on, on national television and all throughout the, the West and, and for quite some time. But I just wanted to read you a few phrases from his address. Here's what he said. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've done or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I hope you, I hope you go to God with all that guilt. And if you're truly sorry, I know I can only speak for myself, but I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you also. And I can only speak for myself, not on behalf of my family, but I love you just like anyone else. I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I really want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want. And the best for you in your life is to give your life to Christ. Whew. I can't, I can't imagine the amount of courage that it would say to say those words after something so horrible has happened and been done to you or to someone you love. See, what happened to Botham Jean wasn't okay. It was unjust, it was devastating, and justice still needed to be served. But in that act of agape love, extending absolutely unconditional love to someone who had every, that he had every right to hate and despise, he said, I love you. And the world took notice. And that video went viral on every news station and every newspaper because that kind of love is countercultural and it demands that people ask why. And the only explanation is Jesus. See, Jesus modeled agape love and it requires the same from us. John 15, 13 says, greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for a friend. Just moments after the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus would be betrayed and beaten and flogged, turned in and abandoned by those he'd loved and served and healed, uh, put up on a cross with thieves and murderers, carrying the weight of sin and death on his shoulders, not because of any wrong that he had done, but the wrongs that I had done, that you have done, because of our sin, 
he died. Isaiah the prophet said, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And, and as he rose again, a great triumphant moment that we're gonna to celebrate together in just a few weeks, he restored peace between God and man and he offered grace and forgiveness to all who ask. That's agape love. Philippians 2, 5, 8 sums this, this whole thing up so beautifully. And it says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, as we conclude, I, I want to take a moment to look at, at the last section of Jesus' command, the second half of the verse. Jesus said this. He said, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. I was, I was realizing this week that maybe really one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have in the world is, is to present a picture of the agape love of Christ to one another loving each other with servant hearts, with humility, loving those who've wronged us, forgiving those who've hurt us, making the Savior look beautiful as he radiates off of us as we serve one another. Then people from outside will look in and they'll say, I want that. I long for that kind of tight-knit, stubbornly loyal community. And when they look to us, then we'll point them to the cross. We'll point them to Jesus. Because although we want to be that kind of people, although we're growing in our love for one another, we fall short. And I will disappoint you. Even in my best efforts to love like Jesus, I'm going to miss the mark. But Jesus loves perfectly. And in him, we find true love and hope and forgiveness. Too often, people's experience with the church is that it's clicky and judgmental. And, and that when, when they sin or make a mistake, they're ostracized or cast out of community. CA Church, let that not be true of us. Let's be people who hold ourselves to a high standard of holiness and purity before God, but who extend scandalous grace and mercy to those who are around us, not surprised by each other's sin. And when one of our sisters or brothers stumbles and falls, let's not beat or abandon our wounded. Let's put our arm around them and carry them for the next lap of the race. Let's do whatever we can to bear each other's burdens. And as we do, the world is watching and God is wooing them, drawing them to himself in a way uh, that, that only he can do as his church loves one another with this agape love. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love that was displayed so beautifully through your life and ministry and how you interacted with those uh, who were close to you, but also those who abandoned you and those who, who were horrible to you and despised you and betrayed you. And so now I just ask that you would um, apply, that we would have the, the courage to apply these truths to our life. Would you bring to mind relationships that need to be restored? People that we need to reach out and reconcile with. Do the work in us, we pray. We want to be a city on a hill that's known for loving each other and loving the world. It starts with us. And so do the work in us, we pray. Amen. Amen.